Well, good afternoon, Hellos Church. It's good to be with you today. Uh, my name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures tonight. If you were with us last week, and you've been with us perhaps for the past couple of months, you know we've just completed our journey through the book of Judges. And uh, that was a, a strong season, I think, in the life of our church to really just give our, give our minds attention and our hearts affections, dealing with difficult truths in that book, all designed to draw us towards a, a richer faith and a more robust faith in, in Jesus. And next week, we're going to start another journey through a book. We're going to step into the book of Ephesians. We'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But before we dive into Ephesians next week, I want to take you to a story tonight that I think will help us continue processing some of the things we talked about last week. Perhaps, some of the, perhaps there were some wounds uh, that were kind of uncovered when we looked at some of the content that was found in Judges chapters 19 through 21. Some wounds perhaps caused by things that you have done or or worse, maybe wounds caused by things that were done to you. And, and as you're processing those emotions and you're wrestling through some of those experiences, uh, I want to encourage you tonight with the fact that you serve a, a tender Savior. And not only is the Savior tender towards his people, the Savior isn't afraid of going to the deep places. That Jesus isn't shallow. He doesn't minister to his people on a superficial level. He ministers to us in the deep places. And so I want to take you to a story that illustrates that tonight. So if you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 4. Because there's a story here where Jesus meets a woman in the deep places. A woman who's wounded in many ways. A woman whose reputation in society has been sullied for things that she has done. Maybe even because of things that have been done to her. Whatever the case may be, we find a tender Jesus wading into the deep waters with this woman to bring healing to her soul, to bring healing to her heart, to reconcile her to the God who created her and to the God who loved her, loves her like crazy. So John chapter four, my hope as we step into this story and we just kind of walk through it together tonight is that what Jesus does in the life of this woman would, would we would recognize the ways in which Jesus is doing, doing similar things in us as Jesus meets us in the deep places of our heart and in the deep places of our life to bring about a transforming, renewing work that only he can bring about. So here in John chapter four, we pick up in verse one. It says, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that is John the Baptist, Though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, it says that Jesus left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about, it was about noon. So what you have here is just kind of the, we're moving towards a conversation that Jesus has with a woman around this well. And this is the longest conversation Jesus has with one singular person in all four gospels. And it's, that's noteworthy. And it's especially noteworthy in recognizing the type of person and who it is he is engaging in such a lengthy, life-giving conversation. 
But before we dump into the content of their conversation, let me give you a little bit of background of what's going on here, just to picture a little bit about what's happening. First, you have Jesus. He's been ministering in Judea. The religious leaders are starting to buck his leadership. They're starting to push back against his ministry as his influence has been growing. And so Jesus knows that it's time for him to return to Galilee to minister to the surrounding areas of of Judea, and the way the geography worked is that you had Judea in the south, and that's kind of where Jerusalem was, and then to the far north, you had the area of Galilee, and that's where Jesus spent most of his time as he was ministering in throughout Canaan and the the land of Israel and this, that, and the other, but then right between Judea and Galilee, you had this, this territory known as Samaria. And Samaria was an interesting place in the sense that it was a place that was uh, looked down upon by the Jewish establishment, by the religious leaders, by really all the Jews in that day. You see, Samaria was a land that started about um, around 722 BC when the Assyrians came in and they conquered the land. They took all the tribes up north and they took kind of the best and the brightest amongst the Jews and they uh, relocated them. They deported them back to their land so they could start assimilating their culture in with uh, assimilating the best of Israel into their uh, culture. But they left behind a group of people that they didn't consider to be uh, very impressive. They were discarded. And eventually the Assyrians sent more people back in to occupy this land. And so now you had a mixed culture where you had the leftover Jewish people there in the Samarian territory, and then you had these others that had come from Assyria bringing in their idols, bringing in their religions, bringing in their understanding of of spirituality and this, that, and the other. Well, what happened during that time is that the new folks married the old folks, and they started having children. They started uh, procreating and reproducing and filling out the land. And, and the Sumerian people were the, the fruit of those hookups. They were the fruit of those marriages. And so the Samaritans were viewed by the Jewish establishment and by Jews as being kind of a, uh, really, they, they despised them so much that it wasn't unlike, well, they would look at them as basically filthy half-bloods. Uh, They did not like the Samaritans. They viewed them as being um, unclean people because of their heritage and because of where they came from. And so there was a lot of conflict between the people who occupied the region of of Samaria and those that occupied Judea. And and eventually the people of Samaria decided they didn't want to worship in Jerusalem uh, the the Lord. They kind of created their own expression of the Abrahamic faith. And so they looked at the Old Testament. They said, okay, we don't like these books. We like these books. And so they committed themselves to the first five books of the Bible, but they discarded all the prophets and everything else. And then they said, okay, well, we need a temple. So they built a temple around 400 BC in a place called Mount Gerizim. And and that's where their, their worship happened regularly. And so there was a big conflict, a big religious cultural divide between the Samaritans and the Jewish people during this day. And so if you were going to travel from Judea to Galilee, if you took a straight shot, it would would take you about three days to travel that road. But strict Jews, knowing what Samaria was like, they intentionally went out of their way to avoid that territory. Nobody willingly, or at least the strict, devout Jews, did not willingly pass through the territory of Samaria. And so rather than a three-day journey, most Jews, it would take them six days as they would walk around to get to the area of Galilee. Now, you know you hate somebody if you're willing to walk six days to avoid seeing them. I mean, I'm sure there are people in your life that you're trying to avoid at all costs, and you might go out of your way to avoid them. Well, this was the situation in the first century. But notice that little phrase, 
Verse four, it says that Jesus had, he had to travel through Samaria. Now, he didn't have to because of a geographical necessity. There was another route he could take. He had to because he sensed there was something his father wanted him to do in that region. After all, we know from other places in this gospel and the surrounding gospels that Jesus committed himself entirely to doing the will of his father. He says, for example, in John chapter 5, verse 19, Truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. And so Jesus kind of walked closely with his father, and he knew what his father was up to in a given moment. And as he would discern that, he would meet the father where he was at work. And so there was something about Samaria at this point in time that was drawing Jesus in that direction so that he had to go to a place that a lot of Jews avoided at all cost. A similar thing is said in John chapter 6, verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus had to go through Samaria in this moment because the father had set up a divine appointment There was someone he wanted Jesus to meet. There was someone the father wanted Jesus to minister to at this well. And so he had to pass through Samaria. And there when he arrives at this place and he joins, he approaches this well. It was about noon and we're told in verse 7 that a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her. Because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal, eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw Water And so he engages, he shows up in this place at this time according to the Father's will, the Father's purpose, a divine appointment, and he meets a woman of Samaria who had come to draw water. And it's important that she was coming to draw water at noon because noon was the peak of the day. That was the hottest time of day. And if you've ever been to the Middle East around this time, you'll notice nobody's drawing water. Nobody goes outside at this time of day because it is too hot. This is fry an egg on a rock hot. It is ridiculously hot. You do not go outside and perform manual labor such as the drawing of water at this time of day. And so what would typically happen is that most women and most wives who carried the responsibility of drawing water each day, they would go early in the morning. And so this place called Sikar, it was, a, it was kind of a socializing spot where you would go and you would see your friends and together you would draw water, you would talk about what was going on in your life. It, it wasn't unlike Starbucks today where people are gathered there and socialize and talk about their day and they have meetups and this, that, and the other. Well, that's what would happen around this well on a regular basis. So it was a place where socialization, where people socialized regularly. But notice that this woman is coming at noon 
and she's coming all by herself. So it seems as though this woman was an outsider, that this woman had been rejected and ejected from the social circles that were quite common for women to run in during this day. The fact that she is by herself and she's there at noontime suggests she was a social outcast. And she's startled when Jesus would ask her for water and she's surprised that Jesus would do this because Jews did not associate with Samaritans. She recognized Jesus to be a Jewish man and Jewish men weren't to engage Samaritans, much less a Samaritan woman like this. Part of the reason was because during that day, since they viewed Samaritans as being unclean, that if a Samaritan ever served you water, if they served you food, uh, that food or that water would be considered defiled or unclean. And if you consumed it, you yourself would be considered unclean or defiled. That was kind of the religious mentality of that day. And so Jewish people kept their distance from the Samaritans in this way. It wasn't unlike that terrible history in our country during the Jim Crow era where we had different water fountains. And you had one race saying, well, let's, that, that, that water fountain belongs to black people. And others saying, well, this is our water fountain and we don't cross streams because there's something defiling, there's something unclean about that dynamic. Well, that was the same mentality that was apparent in the first century. But Jesus was never one to bow down to the cultural prejudices of his day. He's constantly crossing cultures. He's constantly crossing barriers. He wasn't confined to the expectations that were imposed upon him by those who were not thinking rightly about human beings created in the image of God, who were loved by God, and whom God had set his affections upon to redeem and to reconcile to himself. And so he goes and he engages this woman in a conversation. You know, it's a funny thing about religious people who worry about being defiled. They... They worry about things happening to them that would defile them or making, make them unclean. And the, the tricky thing with the religious people is that they just don't recognize they're already unclean. They're already defiled. That's what sin does to every human heart. That's why we all need grace. We all need Jesus. And so if you're religious, chances are you're going to miss Jesus because Jesus goes to the deep places. Jesus wants to deal with what's real about you, not what's Instagrammed about you to the watching world. And so here you have a woman who is startled by Jesus approaching her and talking to her. But there's another dynamic at work in here why she would be startled in this, in this way. Because a well, this, this particular well and other wells in the first century kind of carried a reputation. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you perhaps know that there were a lot of men who met their wives at wells. It became kind of a dating spot. It was a lot of proposals were, were, were spoken at wells in the Old Testament. So that kind of carried a myth in the first century so that people kind of associated wells and drawing water with an opportunity to meet a future spouse and to, to find somebody to date and potentially engage and marry. In this sense, it was kind of like the coffee and bagel of the first century where people just kind of went to explore things. And, and if you connected, you'd go on a date, perhaps Take a walk around Green Lake, stop by Chocolati, and kind of have your conversations. And people are watching, and they kind of know what's happening in those situations. Well, I wonder if they're going to end up together. Well, the fact that Jesus, a single man, engages this woman at a well could potentially throw some other, could raise eyebrows of anyone who would see them doing this. And they're probably wondering, well, what's, what's happening in this relationship? What's materializing here? And the reason why I lay that out is because There's echoes in this chapter, all throughout chapter four, there are echoes of a betrothal scene. There's echoes of a proposal, and in a sense, that's exactly what's gonna happen. 
because Jesus is going to bring her into being a part of his bride. Jesus is going to bring her into being a part of his family. There's a sense in which Jesus is going to present himself to her in a way that looks, I'm the greatest man for you. I am the greatest person for you. And that's important considering the history that you're going to learn about this woman here in a moment. So he and this Samaritan woman engage in a conversation that would have been considered taboo by everyone who caught wind of it. And they have a conversation about water, which makes sense because they're at a well and Jesus is very nimble in his presentation of the gospel. He's very nimble in his conversations about the kingdom. He knows how to take immediate objects and and different things that are happening in a given moment and turn it towards the gospel and turn it towards his kingdom. So he engages her in a conversation about water. And they kind of they miss, right? Because this whole time, she's talking about physical water, and she assumes that Jesus is talking about physical water. But you know, as you look further at the passage, that Jesus is talking about spiritual water. And he's reminding this woman, trying to help her to learn, look, this water's important, but it's not ultimate. Ultimate water is the living water that I am here to give you, that I can provide to your soul. You know, it's possible for a person's body to be hydrated while their soul is dehydrated. It's possible for a person's body to be incredibly healthy while their soul has been neglected. And that happens a lot of times when we find that there's really no water, so to speak, in this world that can hydrate the soul. We need someone else to do that for us. We need a different kind of water. And so Jesus is trying to communicate this to her because he knows she's a thirsty woman. And he knows she has a thirsty soul. So he's saying, look, I'm here to satisfy the thirst of your soul. I want to quench the thirst of your soul. I want to be this for you. Now, I know that you might be reading this story and, and you hear language of thirsty soul and I suspect that every one of you know, you know what I'm getting after. That, that, that each of us have experienced and have sensed at different times a thirst in the soul of wondering, you know, this, the stuff in this world, the stuff in this life is just not quite doing it for me. I can't quite find what I'm looking for. And you, you have these, these wrestling matches in the soul where you're, where, you find, where you're, quite frankly, thirsty. You know, psychologists, they tell us that our brains often kind of mispredict what will actually make us happy or what will actually satisfy our souls. They recognize that we assume that if we achieve, achieve certain things in our life, we'll be happy, we'll be satisfied. And they, they might lay out things like, well, I'll, I'll be happy if I can get admitted into the right school. Or I'll be happy if I could find the right partner. Or I'll be happy if I could have a child. Or I'll be happy if I could get that promotion. Or I'll be happy if I could find a a dream house in my dream neighborhood. And we often mispredict the types of things that would satisfy the thirst of our soul. There was a Harvard Harvard psychologist by the name of Sean Acor who observed this if-then perspective. And he says the if-then perspective cannot be supported by science Because each time our brain experiences a success, it moves the goalposts of what success looks like. And what he's getting after is that tendency for us to have this rhythm where we say, well, if you get good grades, you have to get better grades. If you get a good job, you have to get a better job. If you hit your sales target, you have to raise your sales target. If you buy a home, you have to have a larger home. We're never quite satisfied with what is. 
And psychologists are queuing in on the very thing that Jesus is identifying here, this thirst of the soul, this this thirst of the soul that he alone can satisfy. And, And Jesus isn't the only one to bring this up. God the Father, all throughout the Old Testament, would point this out too. I'll give you a classic passage, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, a a very insightful explanation of the human condition. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, for my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, crack cisterns that that cannot hold water. He's saying the human condition has this problem. Although we were created by God and for God, we have abandoned God. And we've combed the earth searching for a new kind of fountain. And we've hewn out for ourselves cisterns, but those cisterns are actually broken. So we're constantly having to come back to the well to draw more water every single day because there's this, it can't quite do for us what God himself can do for us. And so the Lord would declare in Jeremiah that his people have committed a double evil in that regard. That we've abandoned the Lord and we've sought to satisfy our soul thirst in other types of wells and in other types of places. But friends, there's nothing that can satisfy the soul but the one for whom the soul was made. You know that, right? This is why Augustine would make that classic statement in the fourth century. You and I were created by God and for God. Our hearts are restless or our hearts are dissatisfied until they find rest or find satisfaction in God. And so Jesus is drawing this theme out of this woman because he wants her to understand that he is best for her. And he's going to clarify this as we move throughout the story. This is the point he is making, saying, look, I'm here to give you living water. She doesn't quite get it yet. She's kind of speaking sarcastically and and throwing it kind of back at Jesus, saying, okay, where's this living water that I uh, I won't have to return to this well to get? And, And they're engaging in this conversation, but Jesus knows what the living water consists of. And he knows what the living water, how he's to give the living water to her and to countless numbers of other people like her. And that living water is explained in John chapter 7. If you go a couple of pages over in your Bible, Jesus will get really explicit about this living water. He calls it eternal life in chapter 4, but when you step into chapter 7, you find another description of this eternal life. What is it, what is it about? In John chapter 7, verse 37, it says, on the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scriptures has said, will have streams of, here it is, living water flow from deep within him. And then we're told, he said this about the spirit. Those who believe in Jesus were going to receive the spirit. For the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. That's a reference to the crucifixion and the ascension of Jesus. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the living water, this eternal life that Jesus wants to give this woman, it's his presence. That he seeks to satisfy the thirst of her soul by his spirit and giving his spirit to her, to indwell her, to satisfy her, to be with her. It's the spirit of God that Jesus gives to everyone who would trust in him, everyone who would come to find their thirst satisfied in him. So that's the living water there. Pick up in verse 16. Because at the end of verse 15, she still doesn't quite get what this water is and 
And she's kind of speaking sarcastically to Jesus, but then Jesus turns a surprising corner in verse 16, and this is where we begin to see Jesus is willing to go deep, that he's not a shallow savior, he's not a superficial savior, he's a deep savior who goes to the deep places. Listen to what he says in verse 16. He says, go call your husband. He told her, and come back here. Well, I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands. And in the first century, for any woman to have five husbands, like, it, it was a huge taboo, a huge no-no. And the man you ha- now have is not your husband. You're with somebody now that you're not married to. What you have said is true. And then notice how the woman responds in verse 19. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. (laughs) Well, you're kind of reading my mail, so you must be from the Lord and from God in some way, shape, or form. How did you know this about me? Our fathers, but then she turns the conversation to worship, and she cues in on a debate that was hot between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. She said, our fathers worship on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. So Jesus sides with the Jews. He he realizes that the Samaritan people were wrong in their divergence from uh, the people of Israel in Jerusalem. He affirms that here. But then he says, we worship what what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. And so here's what's happening. Jesus goes deep. He notices, he identifies some things that she has probably hidden, which she would like to have preferred remained hidden. But yet Jesus reads her mail, he calls it into the light, and he identifies kind of the broken cisterns in her life, the the places it seems to be the, the, the bed of different lovers, the bed of different men that she's gone to, to to quench her soul thirst, and these broken cisterns he calls out. And it's clear that he touched on a wound, right? It's clear he's kind of moved too deep and in her mind too fast. This is why she tries to change the subject. Jesus points out this dynamic of her relational dysfunction, but then she starts asking about worship. She's changing the subject because Jesus has touched on a wound. It's it's as though Jesus said, okay, let's talk about your sex life. And then she looks at Jesus and says, well, or, you know, if only the Seahawks would have given the ball to Marshawn Lynch and then not tried to throw a pass, we'd have had two Super Bowl chains. And I got and tried to bring some debate that was quite common that everybody had an opinion on and everybody had a thought on. This is what she's doing. She's trying to change the subject because Jesus has touched on a wound. Now, I don't know why this woman's history has unfolded the way that it does. I don't know it's because of decisions that she has made or if it's the result of things done to her by being mistreated by others. Whatever the case may be, she is clearly wounded because wounds are things we want to hide. Wounds are things we want to keep people away from. 
But the more wounds we hide, or or let me ask you this, is, is there a wound in your life that you are currently hiding? Maybe it's a wound that's a part of choices you've made, or maybe it's a wound that, worse yet, has been the result of choices others have made. Is there a wound that you have been hiding And if you can say yes, which I believe all of us can say yes to some degree to that question, that's exactly where Jesus wants to meet you. That's exactly where Jesus wants to engage you. Because Jesus wants to meet us in the deep places. Now there is an interesting connection in this moment because as soon as Jesus touches on this wound, she brings up this topic, this debate about worship and I find it interesting that Jesus lets her go there. She starts turning the corner towards this conversation about worship and Jesus follows her there. Why do you think Jesus didn't stop her and say, no, 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 you're moving, you're moving too quickly past what I want to know about, what I want to work in you and Why do you think Jesus followed her in that misdirection? Well, in her mind, I think she was thinking that this conversation about where we can worship and how we can worship, that it was somehow disconnected from her personal life, from her relational dysfunction. But but I think in Jesus' mind, he saw the two related. I believe Jesus kept the conversation going in that direction because he interpreted her, her thoughts on worship to be related to the thing, the wound that was present in her life. In other words, we, I believe that Jesus understands and that Jesus is affirming here that her issue with men, with men was a worship issue. Our deepest issues, our deepest wounds, on some level, they reach a worship issue. And what this woman has been thirsty for It hasn't been met by the men in her life. In fact, the men in her life have left her wounded. And and in some ways, the men in her life have taken life from her. They've not given life to her. Her experience is very similar to what a guy by the name of David Foster Wallace would observe about the human condition. David Foster Wallace was a prodigious English writer. He he was a prodigious English writer towards the end of the 20th century and He wrote an essay titled, This is Water, and he talks about the human condition, and he's talking about it from from a non-believer's perspective, and listen to what he says. He says, here's something that is weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that choosing some sort of God is that, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. It will devour you. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. 
But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are default settings. And a few years after he made this speech, Wallace's wife found him hung in his living room. And what he's getting after there when he says that that our deepest wounds, our deepest issues are worship issues and when we find ourselves hiding our wounds, hiding our issues, not, not allowing Jesus to meet us there, the things that we are turning to other than Jesus will one day devour us. They will leave us devastated. And what Jesus is communicating to this woman is that, look, you can bring out, you can talk to me honestly about where you are and about what you've been through. We can get real with me about your wounds because I'm not the type of savior that's here to devour you. I'm the type of savior that wants to delight you. I want to deliver you. I want to bring healing to your soul. Whether those wounds are self-inflicted or whether they are inflicted by someone else, the answer is the same. I am the answer. And so Jesus allows her to turn the conversation towards worship because he sees that the deepest wounds and the deepest issues in a person's life are always worship wounds. They're always worship issues. They arise when we find ourselves seeking satisfaction and delight, joy and happiness in persons, places, and things other than the Savior. And Jesus here is kind enough to this woman to, to meet her in this moment and to engage her in this way because he's not there to devour her. He's there to satisfy her, to delight her. But, so whether your wounds are the result of things done by you or things done to you, Jesus has stepped into this world to do something for you. He's come to do something for us. And he gets after this in this moment, specifically whenever he references an hour. He references an hour that's coming that's going to change everything. An hour that's going to change everything where it's not going to be, where worship isn't going to be a matter of location. It's going to be a matter of, of your response to what Jesus has done for you. The hour there in this conversation and all throughout the Gospel of John, when Jesus talks about his hour, he's always talking about his crucifixion. He's always talking about the hour of his death. And he knows that when he goes to the cross and he gives his life there, he's going to change everything. He's gonna change how we worship. He says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a way for my spirit, this living water to be given to all of my people to satisfy their souls, to heal their wounds, to be the counselor and the minister that all of us desperately need. This is the hour that Jesus is referring to. It's the hour of his crucifixion. And one of the things I find interesting about how, Jesus, how John tells this story is that when you get to John chapter 19, you learn something unique about the crucifixion of Jesus that doesn't, I, don't, I don't think pops up in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. I think it's unique to John's gospel. It's a detail that fits this theme of, of soul satisfaction and soul thirst. When you get to the end of the gospel, when Jesus' hour has arrived and he's being crucified on the cross for our sins to to make a way for us to be reconciled to God. Listen to what we read in John 19, verse 28. John points out that after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that is, he had completed the work the Father had given him to do, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. In that moment, Jesus experienced a type of thirst that all of us are very familiar with. 
in that moment, he experienced a thirst that comes from being, in a sense, alienated from God. Because on the cross, what was Jesus doing? He was taking our place, wasn't he? He was taking our place. He was dying for us. And so Jesus would experience all the calamity of being separated from holy God when he was on the cross. So he cries out, I'm, I thirst. Why is that? Because he's identifying. He's identifying with the human condition. He became thirsty on the cross so that he could satisfy our thirst. He became thirsty on the cross to make a way for his spirit to be given to us so that you and I might draw near to God in worship, worshiping God the Father through God the Son by the Spirit, not in temples made by man, but in, a, in the bodies which become temples of his Spirit. This is what Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he reminds Christians, hey, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Spirit of God? Do you not realize that you are an animated sanctuary, that you are a sacred person, that you are a holy person? This is what my spirit has done for you. This is what the spirit is doing in you. This is what the death of Jesus awards those who would trust in Jesus. Now think about that. I doubt there's anybody there in the first century who's familiar with this woman's story would have ever looked at her in her direction and said, okay, you know, she's gonna become a sacred person. I bet nobody looked at her and thought of her as holy or sacred, or blessed. Nobody read her story that way. Everybody read her story as a story of uncleanliness, as a story of failure, as a story of deep, unresolved wounds that could never be healed or redeemed. And here Jesus is telling her, look, there's coming a day when I'm making all things new, and when that happens, you're going to become a temple of the living God. I'm going to put my spirit within you, and he's going to satisfy your thirst. You're going to become an animated sanctuary a place where heaven and earth collide in the world that is. That's what's going to happen. And that's what's happened for all of us who's come to believe in Jesus. God has given us his spirit so that we might walk with God and commune with God and find rest with God. And this is what God longs to do in all of our lives. I mean, Jesus is clear that the Father has an ambition. He has a purpose. He is seeking worshipers. He wants more men and women brought into connection with himself. He wants more people like us drawn into this worship. And understand, when the Father is looking for worshipers, he's not looking for worshipers because he needs it. He's looking for worshipers because he knows we need it. And if we're not worshiping him, we're going to worship something else. And whatever else other than him, it's going to devour us. It's going to devastate us. It's going to leave us wounded with no hope of being healed. And so there's so much hope coming out of this conversation that Jesus has with this woman. You know, it's interesting that when a wound, when a wound is healed, what happens? When a wound is healed, it becomes a scar, doesn't it? Now, I think after what happens between this woman and Jesus, I think she's experiencing healing, and I believe Jesus is turning her wound into a scar. You see, wounds are the types of things that we want to hide, that we want to hold back from anyone, anyone. But scars, they, they tell stories, don't they? You see a scar on my back, and I'm going to tell you the story about how my wife identified some skin that didn't look right, and I go to the dermatologist to find out it was only to be surprised that it was melanoma and needed to be removed quite quickly, and 
to hear the doctor tell me, you know, if I'd waited six months, this would have been really, really bad for you. But I'm gonna tell you the story of, of God's grace and God's providence in that moment because of the scar that is on my back. When wounds are healed, they, they turn into scars, and scars tell stories. Well, I think this woman, she now has a story to tell, and you actually see this go down in the very next moment. You see this woundedness that she's coming to understand something about Jesus being the Messiah. She doesn't quite get it all, but something is firing in her soul so that she goes from that point forward to start telling a story. And she goes in the next passage. She's no longer running away from people, hiding from people, drawing water at noon. She's going to people and talking to people and engaging people. It's a completely different woman you meet in this next phase. So check it out in verse 27. It says, just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? The disciples are just kind of side glancing at each other, shrugging their shoulders, wondering what's going on here. Verse 28, then the woman left her water jar, went into town and told the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And the disciples are probably like, well, again, they're as, as dense as the woman was at first when Jesus was talking about water. Now they're wanting food. What, what, what's the, what are they talking about? Could someone have brought Jesus something to eat? You know, was there a fish taco laying around somewhere that they didn't see and they wasted a trip to town? But then notice what Jesus says in verse 34. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish, and to finish his work. This is where I feast. My, I feast in doing the will of my father. Verse 35, don't you say there are still four more months and then comes the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the, all the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. And then verse 39, now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said, because the story she told. And when, because the story she told, when, as she testified, he told me everything I ever did. He met me in the deep places. And now she's communicating that story. Her wound has turned into a scar, and her scar is telling story because she's experiencing healing. So when the Samaritans came to town, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said, and they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. In other words, Jesus is bringing healing to everyone. He's turning wounds into scars. He's giving people a story to tell. This is what goes down in this woman's life, and this is what goes down in our lives when we stop hiding from Jesus and we begin to we engage Jesus when he comes to meet us in the deep places. And sometimes that means bringing other people into the deep places of our lives. As we interact with other people who are trusting in the gospel, who are believing in Jesus, people that God sets up divine appointments with for us to meet and engage and to let them in so that they might remind us of Jesus and point us to Jesus, to encourage us, hey, look, stop hiding from Jesus. Open yourself up to Jesus so that he might bring healing to the deep places of your, of your heart. 
So this woman, at the end of the story, she's no longer running from people. She's running to people. She has a story to tell because when Jesus satisfies our eternal thirst, when he brings healing to our deep wounds, he gives us a holy hunger to tell his story. He gives us a desire to share with others what what he has done in us and what he desires to do for them. And when he gets in to start talking about the reaping and the harvesting there, he's he's basically just pointing out, look, when you tell the story of Jesus, things are going to happen. Sometimes people are going to respond immediately, and you're going to reap a harvest as you you talk about Jesus and tell his story. And other times, there may be a delay where you're sowing and not much is happening. Whatever the case may be, just keep telling the story. Just keep telling the story. Eventually, there will be a harvest. Eventually, there will be rejoicing. You know, heaven's going to be full of people with scars. Heaven is going to be full of people whose wounds were healed by Jesus. Even Jesus, do you understand that even Jesus is going to have scars in heaven? When you meet Jesus in the book of Revelation and you're giving a picture of heaven, you understand that Jesus is still bearing nail-scarred hands. You're going to look at Jesus and you're going to be reminded for all of eternity of just what he did for you when he went to the cross. Even Jesus is going to carry scars into heaven and every person who's going to be in heaven will have scars because all of us have deep worship wounds in our lives that only Jesus can heal, that only Jesus can remedy. And there's coming a day, there's coming a day when Jesus makes all things new and we rally around his throne to worship him, scars and all, celebrating the healing, celebrating the satisfaction, celebrating the deliverance that Jesus has given to those who trust in him. We're gonna, we have a story to tell in the ways that Jesus has met all of us in the deep places. So let me encourage you to, to tell the story. Let me encourage you to, to be honest, to be real. Let me encourage you to let Jesus do the work in you that only Jesus can do for you. I'm gonna ask that you bow your heads and close your eyes, and as you do, I'm gonna encourage you just to take a moment and reflect upon this story, reflect upon the idea of of wounds, and I want you to ask yourself and to pray whether or not there are wounds in your life that you have kept hidden for a while. And if there is, I want to encourage you to ask Jesus to meet you there, to ask Jesus to draw near to you and to minister to your woundedness. Ask Jesus to provide you with living water living water that could not only satisfy your soul, but that could heal and redeem your soul. Ask Jesus to minister to you. Help him to, ask him to show you, to turn your wound into a scar. That you would have a story to tell of his redeeming grace, a story to tell of his tender, his tender care for you.